All right, y'all, it's spring, and you know what that means. It's time to start planning our summer festival traveling. Yep, it's time to get into my Airbnb bag cross-country, a.k.a. uh, time to visit my homes all across the country. And you know what I never think about? Why not list my own spot on Airbnb and host some folks at my house? I mean, my house is cute. Yes, let's make money while we're spending money. Just trying to help you out, man, because your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employer's respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Questlove Supreme is a production of iHeartRadio. So, ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to Questlove Supreme. Uh, we are here this morning or this afternoon, as uh, I'm paid Bill has uh, already corrected me. Um, You're welcome. We normally do our, our episodes at nighttime, so this is one of the rare moments where... Um, we're doing a daytime episode. We we attempted to do an a, a daytime episode with Will Smith, but I thought Will was trying to pull a Mariah, and I thought it was one a.m. in the morning. I didn't realize we were doing it in the afternoon. So you know, so yeah, daytime Quest Love Supreme should be very interesting. So right out, you know, at, at the time when we were talking to our guest Monica Lynch, I didn't realize. Of course, I knew every potential QLS episode could possibly delve into Jimmy Jam territory. Every time we refer to Jimmy Jam, it's usually to the fact that, you know, that that particular episode was, what, six and a half hours, mm-hmm. I believe? Yeah, yeah, six and a half hours. Which, and you know, is with, Mon- with Monica, you could take any one of the acts that she discovered, and that could be a whole episode by itself. Exactly. Wow. So like ten of those. <laughs> so, you know, lately, we, we've been, um, since our new home at iHeart, we kind of crammed our show down to normal you know, when we first started, I think the our standard was to be a three hour episode. I realized that sometimes a, a person's story arc goes over 90 minutes. And I guess towards the end of that episode, I didn't want to just skim over casual moments <laughs> in history. So uh, our, our guest today was very kind to oblige us uh, a part two, kind of a first in our in our show. Usually we just, you know, do an entire show for four hours and then you might run the risk of the ire of say hall and notes who were clearly running out of gas after his eyes said when is this done because it better be soon yo Darryl, you couldn't even see his eyes but they still said that shit qls fans yeah. are going to be so angry because like i like you know i like to build up from the beginning of their lives to the peak of of their thing and i really didn't even get to nerd out on kind of the 
the glory oh, Daryl, yeah, the glory beer of Daryl. I was like, yeah, so uh, I can't go for that. So anyway, you got a solo record out now, and thank you. <laughs> yo, remember somebody just told us that they had to go. Who was recently? Somebody was just like, yo, I got to go. John <laughs> Oates. That was John. Yeah, John. Oates. John Oates. John Oates pulled a George Clinton. All right, so y'all have fun. I'm out. My dinner's ready. Yeah. When Daryl Hall went, wow, this interview is long. We we're like, time to go. Like, it was, it was, <laughs> we got to go. That was funny. There's some people that are guests on the show that are fans of the show that know that we nerd out on stuff. But, you know, a lot of times, like Stephen Stout was another example where he was just shocked that we wanted to know the the banal minutia of his career. Like, can you imagine Steve Stout doing an entire interview? Did we even mention the puffy bottle situation at all? No. Uh-oh. Yeah, we did. We got into it. Well, yeah, yeah. I mean, but it was well, like, Fonte you know. Here. If, if, if that were drink champs, you know, that would have been Nori's first question, you know. Exactly. So how many stitches did you get? But all that's to say is we're very grateful uh, for our guest today, Monica Lynch, uh, president of Tommy Boy Records and arguably one of the most uh, successful, I, I guess, storied labels, not even hip hop labels, because a lot of their success came outside of hip hop. You could tell I just got done listening to I've, I've been nerding out on what had happened was. So I, I feel like open mic equal now, like the way that I'm asking questions. <laughs> anyway, oh, wow. I know. Wait, wait to cross promote other. Yeah, other I was like, platforms. oh, that's another podcast. Okay. Right. <laughs> I spread the love. Anyway, Monica Lynch, thank you very much for uh, for obliging us at around two. Oh, man, thanks. It's great to be back because, uh, you know, like I was telling your crew, I've been hearing from everyone now. I've, Kids I used to babysit for said, yo, you were on Questlove Supreme. I can't believe it. You're legit now. Like, wow. <laughs> thank you so much. So, no, you, you, give, you give us the credibility. We, no. we thank you for that. And this you. is the first time that a guest can actually come back on the show and tell us about the feedback because we did such a quick turnaround. This is dope. I like that. All right. Yeah. I like that. So, Monica, so when we kind of last left the, the previous episode, we, we kind of put the pump the brakes on signing De La and really not sensing that there was going to be a part two, you know, again, as I said, I was skimming through a lot of questions, but now that I have a little more time on my hands, I kind of want to ask one more question. So, you know, with the problems, with the problems of having, well, we discussed with Planet Rock, at least the, the, the problems of having massive demand and very little staff and knowing, you know, your history, you guys were sort of churning out not just street cred records, but actual pop hits like Tender Love and Lean On Me. You told the tender love story, but can you kind of speak on how you guys connected with Jay King of Club Nouveau and I guess de facto manager of Timex Social Club? I always felt like Club Nouveau was a a quick response group to the imploding of Timex Social Club with having such a massive hit. And with that group, I felt there was a precursor to what Diddy became because Jay King clearly looked out of place on stage as, okay, that guy's clearly the CEO of the label trying to promote himself with an actual group of musicians. But can you talk about how that whole story uh, came to be? Yeah, uh, thank you. The, you know, Timex Social Club was one of those uh, hits that came out of the West Coast, and not just the West Coast, Sacramento of all places, you know, sack of potatoes, you know. The only thing in uh, Sacramento back then was, of course, it was the headquarters of Tower Records. Um, so it wasn't really from a scene that was already, you know, uh, set like in L.A. or the Bay Area or New York or where, where have you. Um, but that that record was a huge record. It was on everybody's radar, of course. And I think it really broke on the West Coast. Um, but 
Yeah. The, so you had uh, Jay King, you had uh, Denzel Foster and Thomas Foster McElroy, McElroy, you yeah. know, great producers who went on to major, major success. And I'm tr- I can't even remember who the female voice was of the group. Valerie Jones, I think Valerie, her first name is Valerie and Samuel, who also had a Oh, Samuel, yeah. that's right. Uh, Did he do, uh, so you like? Yeah, so you like what you see. That was my program. program. It with the program. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But it was actually, this was one of those unique situations because we were already in a deal with Warner Brothers. And shortly after that deal uh, started, which was around, I guess, 85, maybe 86, whenever Tender Love came out, there was a guy that was hired at Warner Brothers named Benny Medina. Yes, indeed. Yep. And Benny uh, was uh, made the uh, head of uh, Black Music A and R. Um, he, he started in '86. I think around '80. Yeah, I think it was circa '86. Yeah, I'm not sure. For our, but, for our listeners out there, uh, we've mentioned Benny a few times on the show. Um, Benny is technically the Fresh Prince of Bel Air. The the you know the 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 life of what Will Smith is playing is actually based on Benny Medina's story. And I guess uh, Lenny Kravitz sort of mentioned on his episode that, you know, Benny started out kind of as who, who was, uh, who was Diddy's uh, uh, sidekick with the umbrella? Uh, Fonsworth Bentley. Yeah. He was kind of the Fonsworth Bentley to kind of eh, second seventies, early eighties era, Barry Gordy. Mm. And he formed a, uh, a very interesting, disco rock band called apollo um i've only seen him perform twice he's doing a lot of work in that sentence yes son i put quotes <laughs> on it uh, <laughs> interesting he's doing a lot of work yeah Do we apollo. know a song or something no we nah, don't oh. you just, just google <laughs> benny Medina apollo um i've only seen him on soul train and dance fever and you know even at the age of eight i was like wow this is weird but of course, Apollo contained uh, Carrie Gordy, who was also became a kind of got a day job as a as an exec. And, you know, Carrie's younger brother was uh, Rockwell of uh, somebody's watch me fame. But so when she mentions uh, Benny Medina, you know, Benny Medina starts off as the real life Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, uh, works at Warner for some time period and then becomes like super manager of J-Lo and Will Smith and everyone. So. Sorry, I, I got to do footnotes for. Our that's good. That's good. Go yeah, no, man, this is you breaking it down. The, yeah, yeah, he was uh, he had lived with the Gordy family at some point after Apollo. Uh, he was hired by uh, Mo Austin at Warner Brothers, and he was uh, made the head of Black A and R, Black Music A and R. And his, you know, his very early signings. Uh, I don't know if you remember the female body inspectors. No, FBI. Wow. The FBI, okay. FBI. There's another. You know guy. this group, Fante? I've heard of this before. Yeah, of course you know. Yeah. He's wearing his yeah. glasses today. He knows Kids story. just used to say it on the playground. I didn't know it was a group, but okay. It's your discogs. <laughs> and then there's uh, I, there was another guy named Shet, I think Cedric or Shedrick or he was he was sort of had that West Coast, uh, you know, curl activator thing going on. Are you talking about Sherrick? Sherrick. That's it. Yeah, Wait a minute. Is that the Sherrick? Is that the Sherrick that's part of Wendy Williams' story? Yes. Yes, it is. Wow. Wait, what? What? So wait, Sherrick, didn't he do call your name? Yeah, no, no, just no. call. Just call. That was him. You can call me what you wanna. 
baby just called. It was like huh. the greatest Luther song that Luther never sang. But right. I, I love that record. I believe uh, at the top of Wendy Williams's uh, story, her biopic, kind of the beginning of her trauma starts with uh, an unfortunate vision a uh, visit to his nah, hotel room. Ex, but yeah. Oh, oh an yeah. unfortunate visit. Okay. An unfortunate visit that. to his hotel room okay. so, sort of begins the beginning of, of Wendy's trauma era. I love these so. footnotes. This is cool. Okay. All right. Like, I, man, I got Fonte on the show, man. I got, I got to keep up with, <laughs> with, with helpful, useless information Almanac. about R&B yeah. acts you've never heard of. <laughs> so much useless information. Oh, man. I'm sorry. Say it, Monica. So, no, it's all right. So Benny was making his way. You know, he'd had a couple signings. Uh, nothing had really blown up, you know, big time. But he uh, uh, got a hold of Jay King when Timex Social Club uh, broke. And... You know, Jay King was really a very intense, kind of difficult guy. Uh, He would would have you believe that. He would have you believe Mm -hmm. that. Yeah, he was a rather compact guy. Short record executive scared the shit out of me. So I already know. (laughs) Yeah. 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 I'm not afraid of Sugar Knight at all, but short, short dudes, nah. Yeah, he looked like he was buying his suits on Broad Street in Newark, you know. Thank you. You're Newark. You're $59.99, you know, Sunday church special type of suits. And you know, because he he just did he had this whole other look. And I've got a fantastic photo of me, Benny, and and Jay King together from that era. And it sort of says a lot just in this one photo. But anyway, it was Benny who um brought in Jay King and what became Club Nouveau. I think that the group was already sort of at falling apart and there was power struggles because Jay was a very, you know, he ran things with an iron fist in, mm-hmm. in that organization. But so Club Nouveau was, you know, when Timex fell apart, Club Nouveau was the answer. Yes, you're right about that. And um, and the album came out through Warner Brothers and through Benny and our deal with Warner Brothers, Tommy Boy released all of the Club Nouveau 12 inch singles, which was very significant because they had a bunch of hits, you know? Um, and it, it, again, this was a group that was like, who the hell are they? You remember all the album cover and 12 inch cover artwork? Yes. For Club mm-hmm. Nouveau. It's like silhouetted or you can really. Yeah. It, it looked like, well, it kind of looked like. Well, the drawings. Yeah. It looked like prison art. Yeah. Really? Yes. Wow. <laughs> Damn, Monica could be borderline a, a QLS member. <laughs> no, like when you go to the club and they have like the backdrop. That you exactly. Take, it looked like that. It right. Like right. It did look like that. It kind of looked like outsider art or something you put next to the, you know. For the, both those albums. Y'all making listen me look. to the message and Life, Love, and Pain. Life, Love, and Pain. Matter yeah. of fact, I did not buy Life, Love, and Pain. Because I didn't like the album cover. So I passed on it. <laughs> Dang. That is crazy. But it's just her face. Well, oh, it does look like a prison. I forget. No, I, don't I bought know. the first album, not the second album. <laughs> it's somebody, just the somebody needs to look up who did the artwork on all those because it was the same person who did all that artwork. And I think, it, in fact, it was the same woman who was portrayed on those all those covers. And it was ingenious because... Nobody really knew what Club Nouveau looked like, but the there was such a strong branding and identity with those covers. You knew when you went into the store, if you bought 
um, situation number nine that you knew what jealousy, you know, you could say, oh, it looks like jealousy, you know, buy them all, collect the whole set. Oh, oh, like, yeah, why am I treating so bad? Like, situation number nine, lean on me. They all had the same. Yeah, there was, they all had the same artwork style, same artist. And I think it was the same female model that was used. Like she, she was going through different phases of emotions on the cover artwork and all this. But, you know, that sound was such a, it was a sound that really traveled quite well. I mean, we never had any records that sounded like Club Nouveau. That was not a New York, you know, sound, even remotely. And, but in the South, the West, Midwest, all these places, people love those Club Nouveau records. They may uh, not know who Club Nouveau is, though, but they, but they, they like Club records. Nouveau records. Oh, yeah. Well, they, so. I mean, they, they were kind of close to what Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis were doing. Like, you could almost say that Club Nouveau was probably a precursor to the New Jack sound. Mm. Yeah, like you could rhyme over rumors like back in the day, rumors could have been a beat on Houdini's record. Like, I guess they sort of took the baton where Larry Smith wasn't able to to carry. Mm. Very melodic, you know, sort of funky, sort of slower. Right. Um, yeah. And I think I, I think you're right. You know, Jimmy and Terry's influence was being widely, you know, their sound was being widely copied at that point. At the time when Timex Social Club imploded, kind of my only internet, at least for real-time news, was always like Lee Bailey's Radioscope. Mm-hmm. So around that time period, there was a lot of back and forth between Jay King and the Timex Social Club's guys, like dissing each other. And this is the first time I'm seeing like what I considered an R&B situation. Like it's one thing for like LL and MC Shan to go to each other because okay, they're rappers; they're supposed to do that, but you know, not to this level, but that said, were you guys even allowed to have uh, an audience with with Denzel uh, and Thomas for their production? Or did you did you get a sense that they were doing all the work musically? Well, first of all, I would say Denzel and Thomas are really nice guys, you mm-hmm. know, cool, easy to deal with, you know, just cool guys. I, it, Jay was kind of a more sort of paranoid um type of guy. And like I said, he really was, had a, he was a bit of a control freak, really. I could see where anyone would chafe under his leadership. And, and, and I, I don't know what the business was that they had arranged, but I'm having, I have a feeling it probably wasn't particularly advantageous for Danny and Tommy. So Denzel and Thomas. So I don't recall, I I just remember Jay always being a guy that was quick, quick tempered, you know, very controlling, you know, not an easy guy to get along with tightly wound, Mm -hmm. but to his credit, I would say also that he had a pretty strong vision about what he wanted and that it worked. So, you know, they had a, a brief and glorious run and it's of course, uh, what was the put five on it was much sample. I got five on it. Yeah. Uh, why you treat me so bad. Why you treat me so bad. Yeah. yeah. So, um, but I, after lean on me, I don't know whatever happened to, you know, Jay King or anyone, you know, Denny, Denzel and Thomas, of course, went on. 
All right, y'all. You know what season it is. Tis the season for spring breaking and planning our summer travel. And if you're like me, you're already in your Airbnb app trying to find which spot is right for you. Now, listen, while I'm looking to spend all this money, what I'm not doing is thinking about making money with Airbnb. See, you got to change your mind state. Make the money while you're spending the money. How, you say, Laia, do I make the money? Well, you host at your house. And I know what you're thinking. I mean, my whole house? Uh, well, no, you don't have to do your whole house. I mean, you could do a room or, you know, do the whole house. So make some money while you're spending some money this summer. I'm trying to tell you, your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at Airbnb.com slash host. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. AT&T connects an ode to podcasts. Connect the alarm. Change the podcast you stream. Connect the snooze. Ten more minutes to dream. Connect the shower. Lather up with the news. Sports talk, comedians, or movie reviews. Connect with that three-hour philosophy show. Change the drive into work and traffic. So slow. Connect the dishes to voices that glow. Thank you to the geniuses of spoken audio. Connect the stories Change your perspective. Connecting changes everything. AT&T. With 1986 being the, 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 I mean, with that marriage of Warner Brothers and um, Tommy Boy, I noticed that was the only label that you saw both logos on. Was there a reason for that? Like, is there a reason why Three Feet Behind Rising and Naughty and all the other subsequent Tommy Boy releases also didn't have the Warner Brothers logo on it? Oh, it's it's actually a pretty simple explanation. The um, deal with Warner Brothers was that um, we would have discussions or mutually agree on what artists and albums would be best suited to go through Tommy Boy's independent distribution system. And, and, and there were select artists like Force MDs for example, um, who, uh, where they had a shot at getting, you know, top 10 black radio hits and, and Warner brothers had an in-house, you know, black music promotion and marketing department that we didn't have. And so we would mutually agree upon which releases would go through, you know, which system. So the palatable R&B non-hip-hop stuff went through Warner sometimes? Yeah, I mean, and it wasn't like there was that much of it. I mean, the Force MDs might be might have been the only one, but there was. Oh, oh well, that's not true either. Uh, Information Society was Silent Morning. Wow. <laughs> well, you didn't know <laughs> Noel. Every kid in. Uh, oh wait, that wasn't Information Society. It was close. No, it was no uh, Silent Morning. I think was Noel. Was that a, a Tommy Boy? Running. You're thinking running. Well, you know, it's it's a. Uh, Information Society was um, 
well, their first record was running and they were from Minneapolis and, right. and they were, they had an interesting story because um, they actually were on a label up in Minneapolis. I think it was called twin tone, an indie sort of, um, I don't know, alternative rock type of label. And they had this record called running. It was, and it was actually a uh, little Louis Vega who was working as a DJ at El Nido del Diablo, the Devil's Nest, which was club, which was Salabatiello's uh, other club. Oh, really? He was running the fever, disco fever, but he opened this place called the Devil's Nest. And and Louis Vega, who uh, along with Joey Gardner at Tommy Boy was also one of the pioneers of the whole Latin freestyle scene and sound, picked up on this, information society record and and uh, turned Joey Gardner onto it and that it was Joey who brought information society to Tommy boy Joey is my neighbor he lives upstairs from me and we're we're like family you okay. know he's he's a kid I plucked out of crazy Eddie's 12 inch department like in back in 1982 or 83 crazy Eddie's wow crazy, Eddie. crazy Eddie's was a player in in selling records um you mentioned information society I, they did a also, uh, I want to know what you're thinking. Tell me. Yeah, pure energy. Yeah. So, I mean, even with groups like that sort of coming ahead of the curve of like, I don't know what you would call like Depeche Mode or kind of like new wave. those type those type of. Yeah. Well, post new waves sort of like, I mean, it's it's not pop. It's not rock, but it's definitely synth based. I, I guess for me, I, my question is, is it possible for an independent label which i i mean i imagine that you guys were sort of like the equivalent of trying to navigate a tricycle on the 405 so you know is it possible for an ind- an independent label to navigate itself in the age of majors you know like is AM truly the last independent major that could operate as a major label and you know, what held you guys? Because I, I actually feel like you guys were in that Motown AM lane where Tommy Boy could have actually became a major. But like, is someone cutting you guys off at the knees at the top or like, how does that happen? Well, you know, it's interesting because you go back to really um, distribution because there was in the early 80s, there were AM, uh, Motown, and I think it was might have been Arista. I'm not sure. There were th- three of the very, very large independent labels were they were independently distributed, and then they went, became majors, and so it left this entire different field of smaller labels that were that constituted the indies and independent distribution. But the independent distribution distributors really sort of got the rug pulled out from under them when. Motown and AM left. Um, so we it, it actually presented opportunities for labels like ours. But when you so that's that might have been in the very early 80s, maybe late 70s when that happened. But fast forward to you know circa 86 or so, you know, be it Tommy Boy or any of the other independent labels, it was almost impossible to even contemplate having pop records and cracking top 40 radio uh, or, or even it was a pretty rare event to even have, 
you know, be able to have a top five or top 10 uh, black radio single. You know, we just didn't have the sort of muscle. I mean, these uh, these are labels that had full on departments Mm -hmm. and they had a lock on the slots. You know, it was not an even playing field. You know, uh, a lot of times the thing where is it a thing where uh, let's say like Walter Yetnikoff at at Sony or, uh, you know, where. Okay, you you guys are basically fighting for at least 30 or 40 positions at a major label. And is it a thing where it's just an an unspoken given that, you know, we got to save at least 15 spots for a Sony artist, a Michael Jackson, a Sade? uh, I wouldn't even say it was unspoken, you know. Uh, (laughs) Oh, it was was spoken. Yeah, it was spoken. I mean, you know, it it was be it wasn't even, uh, you know. It was just so much muscle, so much leverage. You know, you want Springsteen tickets. You want to do the giveaways for, mm-hmm. you know, uh, you know, refrigerator. You know, you, you've got this, you've got that. We just didn't have those those sort of resources, those tools. It's not like things. So got- your success was word of mouth. Like, wow, I really like this Lean On Me song. So let me add it. The any hits that we had had to have much more muscle and and hit power behind it to even get a shot really but you know uh but lean on me of course was unique in that it was a cover it was in a big film it was on a big soundtrack Mm -hmm. you know so uh you know it had a lot of uh there was a lot of support mechanisms with that particular track and did the club djs help with that too like it would seem like a lot of club newton world records were working in the club so did that Working y'all favor a little bit more. I would say you actually their biggest hit being Lean on Me was probably not really not a club that, that record. It wasn't. It wasn't, yeah. No, it wasn't a club record. The other records were much more, you know, mm-hmm. street and club type of records and radio record black radio records. Um, but uh Lean on Me was I I forget, I can't even remember the name of the movie. Maybe Lean on Me. Oh, all right. Well, there you go. <laughs> there you go. So, you know. Well, that's also after the fact, because Lean On Me came out in like 89, whereas the single came, you know, Club New Vogue came out in 86. But, yeah, you know, it's 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 a thing it, where it's a song where both generations, Gen Z, um, Gen X and Baby Boomers knew the song. And it was weird to hear, you know, it was like, you know, the, the beat felt like post Rick Rubin Def Jam. So it was definitely. Yeah. A statement yeah. record. You know. Yeah. And, and and there was a great woman who worked for many, many years at MCA Records named mm-hmm. Kathy Nelson. Okay. Yeah. And Kathy was really uh, one of the pioneers of that soundtrack era Ooh, that yeah. was so huge in the late 80s and early 90s. And she put a lot of uh, black artists on those soundtracks where that wasn't necessarily happening as much prior to that. She was always like, she'd say, Monica, you've got anything? I'm looking for a track for this record. How about that Club Nouveau? She had a funny way of talking. She was great. She she had a lot of energy, a very dynamic, redheaded gal. She was a powerhouse. She worked there with Al Teller. Uh, I don't know if you remember Al Teller. We know. Yeah, so... Uh, in any case, but she was, um, it was her, it was through her that we got that placement, you know, um, 
And also, I just want to say, you may, before we get off the topic entirely of Benny Medina, Benny played a very uh, critical role with Tommy Boy in that he um, brought in, uh, it was through him actually that Naughty by Nature landed on Tommy Boy. Mm. And it was a circuitous ah. route. Yeah, tell us. Uh, uh, tell us the story. <laughs> well, I, I want to make sure I get it all right, but I probably won't. But the, But the thing is, is that once upon a time, we were pitched to sign Naughty by Nature, but they weren't Naughty by Nature at that time. They were called, somebody help me. The New Style. The, the New, new Style. And yes. you Style. Huh? Right. I, yeah. And, and they were um, actually on a label called Bon Ami, which was part of Sylvia and Joe Robinson's empire and they were wearing and they wore zoot suits no they didn't no no not Vinny. no yeah, they did no, not they did. No, no they did i seen a photo yeah yeah i think arsenio so, had a photo yes so they weren't they they were not naughty by nature yet and they didn't whether in sound attitude style nothing you know they were in a a different larval stage of their career so can i ask did you guys truly know what you had because only in retrospect i will say that naughty by nature mm -hmm. is probably the best storied example of riding the thin line between authentic hip-hop because as a, as an mc and a lyricist you know tretch was no joke tretch was an influential mc like so good almost like he's in ll's lane where mm -hmm. you know mm -hmm. you're so good you don't get credit Mm-hmm. Yes, that's trash. Yes. And but these songs, like they wrote massive anthems and like they're they're knack for really good pop hooks. Mm -hmm. Did you know instantly? Oh, we can really because I mean they're coming out post Wild Thing, post Buster Move, where like a pop rapper really has to go non-threatening rap to get to the other side. Like, did you guys know instantly what you had, or was it sort of like a learning process where Oh wait a minute, we 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 can do another one and another one and another one. And well, no, no, I think that well, first of all, they weren't all all those records had not been recorded, at, at, you know, at, at at single point. I think anyone who heard OPP knew that they were listening to a smash hit. There was a one listen record. Nobody, you know, you didn't have to you you'd have to have a real tin ear not to hear OPP. Um, was that the response yeah. from radio when they when you played it for them, Monica? I'm just curious. They were like, oh, yeah. And well, before radio, I mean, radio was not always the first stop, you know, but, the, but here's the thing. This, here's the stage setting that it, when Naughty by Nature came around and they had OPP, these were guys from New Jersey. And nobody was really checking for New Jersey at that point. New Jersey was not the most legit place to be from as an MC at that point in time. You had to be from the five borough. Did it matter? Yeah, it did matter. It did matter because you were, you were in that era of sort of clicks and crews and who you down with and who's your producer. Pretty red man, right? Like, so, yeah. yeah what well, the album was 92. Okay, okay. Yeah, okay. I mean, I, I forget. Maybe somebody can 
you know, tell me what well, year OPP, OPP was. Yeah, 91, 91 is uh, the first naughty album. Okay, so yeah. uh, so OPP came out before that, so it might have been 90 or not, early 91. But mm-hmm. the thing is, is that no one was really checking for Naughty by Nature. The OPP, however, was one of those records where, you know, I always have I've always said this, the best records you can ever get are the ones that a two-year-old and a 102-year-old can get into. You know, because it crossed all party lines and you had that Jackson five sample that people knew it was part of the the, the musical DNA for damn near everybody. But the thing that really was a very big turning point for Naughty by Nature being, uh, you know, elevated and checked in a different way was when the the premiere issue. Well, I should say it was sort of like the test run issue of vibe came out and in fact it wasn't even called vibe yet it was called volume Mm -hmm. and i was friends with the guy who was the editor the the first editor um alan leach i mean alan light no 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 alan was later um the little gray cells are not what they used to be he's a big writer he's a big writer for uh, a lot for vogue and a lot of other places now but um jermaine hall no, Eight no, that's late enough. Yeah. Oh, first, first editor, Scott and Bryant. Jonathan Van Meter. And I was kind of friendly with him and th- this guy named Gil Rogan at Time, uh, Time uh, Warner Publications, you know, Time Magazine, and all the publications that they had. Anyway, it was just, uh, it was Quincy Jones' project, of course. Anyway, somehow, um, I said, oh, you know, what if I went to, uh, you know, um, God, what is his name now? The photographer that did the the big photo. I went to Jonathan this. Mannion. No, this is all before Jonathan Mannion. But he's a really incredibly well-known photographer. I said, oh, you know, we could do this story about all of the hip hop artists who are starting to wear tattoos. And uh, <laughs> that was a thing. Starting. Wow. It, it was Sorry. a thing. Well, the, you know, this is very early 90s. And yeah. there was a lot of kids who were really starting to get into the tattoo scene. Right. And and so um, I lined up this uh, photo session and and I said, oh, you know, get, you know, I got puffy and um, the guys. um I got naughty and a bunch of people from different groups and different camps. And he did the photo session and the big, the big photo that came out of it was Tretch with his shirt off. It was arms arms up like this. And that landed on the cover of what was the really the first issue of vibe. And like, again, I guess it was a, it was a uh, test run issue. I think at that point they called it volume and they had to change the name because the word volume was owned by some other publication in the UK. Albert Watson. Albert Watson. Thank you. Yes. It was Albert Watson. Mm -hmm. Great guy. Really an amazing photographer. And, um, uh, but in any case, uh, of course, (laughs) You know, Scott Polson Bryant came up with a much better name for for the mm-hmm. publication, but it was that cover that women saw Tretch oh, on yeah. that cover. Oh yeah, game over. Yeah, yeah. So that was the game changing moment. Uh, Zoot suit's gone. Oh, I mean, machete 
you know, yeah, chain balls, chains, like the, yeah. the machete, the the huge tr- chains and trench, you know, boots. like this. <laughs> Women just totally yeah. lost it, and yeah. it was like so. So trench is all of a sudden a sex symbol, and naughty continues having really amazing hits and KG. You know, uh, I think also underrated, frankly, as a producer, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. a really great producer. Um, and Vinny was like, you know, such the spark plug of the group. They were fantastic as a live act. And they kept having these great records. Still are. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. But they but at that point, you know, when OPP came out, it really New Jersey was not really happening. And um, one of the other things that was really big about OPP is when we did the video for OPP and we did. This is a crazy thing, but this is how it was at, at independent labels back then. We just made these little stickers. They cost nothing to make. It says you down with OPP. Right. And they they featured prominently in the video. And we would hand out packs of a hundred and a thousand stickers. They were, you know, hand them out all over the place. It was like having an your own street army of kids spreading the word on OPP yeah. just with those damn stickers. Because then everybody wanted the stickers. It was like, you guys, I want them stickers. You got them stickers. I'm going to put it on my Trapper Keeper. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. It's like when you give a kid a pack of stickers, they were like deputized. <laughs> so right. a locker. Yes. <laughs> All right, y'all. You know what season it is. Tis the season for spring breaking and planning our summer travel. And if you're like me, you're already in your Airbnb app trying to find which spot is right for you. Now, listen, while I'm looking to spend all this money, what I'm not doing is thinking about making money with Airbnb. See, you got to change your mind state. Make the money while you're spending the money. How, you say, Laia, do I make the money? Well, you host at your house. And I know what you're thinking. I mean, my whole house? Uh, Well, no, you don't have to do your whole house. I mean, you could do a room or, you know, do the whole house. So make some money while you're spending some money this summer. I'm trying to tell you, your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. AT&T connects an ode to podcasts. Connect the alarm. Change the podcast you stream. Connect the snooze. Ten more minutes to dream. Connect the shower. Lather up with the news. Sports talk, comedians, or movie reviews. Connect with that three-hour philosophy show. Change the drive into work and traffic so slow. Connect the dishes to voices that glow. Thank you to the geniuses of spoken audio. Connect the stories. Change your perspective. Connecting changes everything. AT&T. Was there any truth to the rumor? I've read this a, a lot of places. Was there any truth to the rumor that Tretch or someone from Night, I don't know if it's Tretch, brought a bag of snakes? Yes. 
It's not a rumor. It's truth. And I'm happy to share that story. Yes. <laughs> what? Because someone, someone asked me about this recently. And I said, yeah, here's the story, man. On a weekday morning, a Tommy boy. Um, and again, we're talking about maybe crack of dawn, like 10 a.m. or something. Uh, I was in my office and the receptionist said, hey, Tretch is here with some of his guys. Um, I think Pookie and I forget who, maybe three guys, I think. Always a Pookie. There's always a Pookie. And I still remember Pookie. Pookie's actually a a nice guy. But uh, they're here. They're demanding to see Tom. They're kind of upset. and, um, And Tom wasn't there. And so, and his, his office door was closed. So they march around the, they march around the, the, around the corner to my office. My office at Tommy Boy was across from the only bathroom. There were no windows in my office, mm. no poor ventilation. You know, I, I got the whole smell of vision in my office, Oh God. but it was, um, but they just showed up in my office and Tretch, he was, you know, Tretch is actually kind of a quiet guy. He was a man of few words, really. He wasn't like, you know, he wasn't like yelling or, you know, whatever, popping off or anything. He just had this shoe box uh, and he opened it and he d- dumped out what were really uh, like garter snakes okay, and, good. and, okay. and, and uh, mice. These were the type of things that you would have gotten at a pet supply store oh, yeah. and mice. Yeah. Mice and garter snakes. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and so, and, and of course, like I'm, you know, mortified, like what the fuck? And they, you know, and then they just ran out. There's no like explanation or anything. Well, come to and find out. And that was out. one of your more successful groups. <laughs> yes. Yes. Right. That's the ones that was getting love. Well, like ghetto bastard wasn't, didn't go double platinum or it's a one wasn't here's why it happened. So it was a dumbest fucking shit. There had been a dispute that really involved the business affairs guy and the group's attorney. Mm -hmm. And it was over. Now, when I talk about the most mundane shit, it's sort of mundane when you had cassettes were the, you know, such a, probably the number one, uh, format at that time uh, for for albums, and there was a big dispute over the J card for the the album that was coming out. Because you know how like when you get a J card, and sometimes they would be folding out yeah. and you know, advertising stuff or whatever lyrics and blah blah blah. Well, there was a dispute because Naughty had started making their Naughty gear. Naughty gear, yo. Okay. And they wanted yeah. <laughs> they wanted to have a free panel on the J card. Oh, yeah. And lawyers, being lawyers, they were sort of dicking each other over about well, if you're going to have this panel, you're going to have to pay 0.07 cents per panel. Blah blah blah. By the time this is translated to the group you know, it has become World War Three. And I wasn't even really aware of what the the issue was. But the thing is, is that what year did this happen? The the snakes and uh, the mice. Second album, right? Yeah, I forget what year this was. I mean, I I would guess this is probably 91, 92 when this incident happened is before we moved downtown. So 
Uh, but, but it was in the age of maybe uh, beepers and, mm-hmm. you know, stuff like that. So by the time word made its way downtown to the source and the rest of the hip hop world, it had become like, yo. And then he brought fucking anacondas and yeah, sewer that's rats. And, <laughs> and, and it became, you know, within 10, 15 minutes, it was like, you know, the biggest event. In the telephone. Gym. It would have made more sense if he would have had anacondas and boa constrictors because, like, garden snakes and some small, like, pet store mice. Like, what you <laughs> Well, he was making a statement, and I guess the statement he wanted to make was, hey, you know, you guys are rats and snakes. Like, and if so, someone dumped some snakes on your desk, you wouldn't care fuck what kind of snakes they <laughs> No, you're right. No, no, I'd be freaked out. No, 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 no. I saw a water bug last night. Yeah. I almost died. No. Like, no, yeah, no. So then, so then, about less than an hour after the incident, I get a call from Shaquem. And Shaquem is Latifah's business, business partner and also managed a naughty. And he was apologizing. Oh, man, I, you know, he just was smoking some strong stuff this morning or whatever it was. He was really pissed off. And I'm sorry that happened, blah, blah, blah. But it already it became one of those things of hip hop lore. Right. So but that's the story. But it added to their whole persona. So. It did. Yeah, it was, a, you know, listen, it's one of the, look, we're sitting here in 2022. You're asking me about stories. So, you know, obviously it's lived on in infamy. Were your offices located on First Avenue? Yes, we were. um, Okay. I would say we were in the hip hop hinterlands. It was um, York Avenue, uh, First Avenue in uh, an area called Yorkville. We're very close to where the mayor's, you know, mansion, mansion. is. Okay. Mm-hmm. I'll, I'll, yeah. I'm only asking that's it's an inside joke. Uh, I never knew it's, it's, it's one of those moments where De La had jokingly credited uh, uh, a fictional, like a song. Uh, what, what was the B side to uh, me, myself and I Fonte? Oh, what's more. What's more. What's more was credited to uh, being a, 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 a song on the soundtrack to hell on first Avenue. Oh, <laughs> and I was like, wait, is that a real movie? And is it, I, yeah, <laughs> I didn't know if they told me that if Tommy Boy was on, like referring to Tommy Boy, but probably. Yeah, it was, I, um, you know, it's funny because uh, we were up there. We, we had these offices above a soccer store called Das Soccer. And yeah. uh, but but Jive Records was actually just a couple blocks over over on Lexington in mm-hmm. uh you know, I used to walk over there sometimes. And Brenda K. Starr lived across the street from oh, the Tommy cool. Boy offices. Wow. And uh, yeah, no, actually, it was a great run at those offices. Yeah. Actually, fun fact. Uh, I believe the Roots shot their Proceed 2 video with Roy Ayers mm-hmm. on the rooftop of Tommy Boy. Oh, you're kidding. Wow. Because I believe I believe hmm. this is this is how I got to know who the Jazzy Fat Nasty work because when we were done shooting that video and I went down and had to pass your offices, there's a, a poster of the four of them on the wall. And then I guess someone had put someone happened to be listening to their music. And I was like outside the door, like, what the oh, hell is wow. this? This is crazy shit I ever heard. And someone explained that, you know, Quentin uh, had gotten a label deal with you guys and whatnot. And they gave me a tape and I listened to it in the car obsessively and then stalked them. And then they moved yeah, they into my great. house for the next uh, 14 years and never left. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> you probably um they're still in my house right now no <laughs> it, was, it was actually an a and r guy named uh albie ragusa who okay. was involved in bringing the jazzy fat nasties our way and i loved what they were doing um it was totally different cool out there like incredible you know my recollection though is i think that at that point, the group themselves were not entirely, uh, you they know, were slowly imploding. But I mean, from what I heard, you know, Jay Swift was really gearing them up to be if the Far Side's debut album were sung by women, hmm. it would have been like I've never heard such hmm. a bolder, more adventurous record ever. Yeah. And kind of my chagrin is that they came to us and I felt like the thing that really made them awesome we got Jason. rid of Jason. so oh, wow. but that's neither here nor there well you know it's too bad that that didn't come together because i think that there would they would the the lane was was going to be wide open for them um there wasn't there hadn't been anything yeah like before my fandom for slum village like i was about jazzy fat nasties does um, that record ever come out y'all can people find the jazzies on tommy boy i mean i found maybe like seven songs like mm-hmm. I'm sure there's rough mixes somewhere, but yeah, I'm certain Jay Swift has it somewhere. Or yeah, his, you know, and plus, you know, they're they're another great example, you know, like De La Soul and other acts that we've had, where the name itself, like, if you have a great name, yeah, they did have a great name. It really helps, <laughs> you know. It does. Jazzy Fat Nassies, what a cool name is. Perfect. But can we just say in this moment, everything happens for a reason, because if this didn't happen, we wouldn't have had the Black Lily, which means there may not have been a Jasmine Sullivan, a Kindred the Family Soul, a Flow a Tree. I mean, the list just goes on and on. So it's literally like everything yeah. happens for a reason. Yeah, everything happens for a reason. Yeah. So, Monica, that that said about imaging, um, we, we briefly glossed over it the last episode. But, you know, and it's the irony is not lost on me that you know, kind of the, the nightmare stories about the office are also happening from your most successful groups. How are you guys feeling about the time when constantly, like if you're thinking, okay, we got De La Soul on the LL Cool J tour. This should be smooth sailing for them. Mm-hmm. And yet night after night, every tale of violence and pugilism and fighting mm-hmm. are coming from the one group that, at least on paper, isn't supposed to represent that, which mm-hmm. I mean, I, I get their point that they felt that they were pegged in a hole, which they would have to sort of whatever, mm-hmm. prove their mm-hmm. machismo in, in an age where machismo was everything in hip hop. But when you guys are getting reports back that, you know, every night Dela is kind of getting tested uh, by the kids in the yard. Uh, mm-hmm. especially on tour and they eventually get kicked off of the tour. Mm-hmm. Are you like, are you guys starting to think like, well, maybe we went too far with the marketing or whatever. I mean, from my end, that shit was a lifesaver because it gave me something to relate to, but mm-hmm. like in hindsight, what do you, what do you think it was that sort of put them in the position that mm-hmm. they really sort of disassociate themselves from three feet high and rising? Well, okay. Uh, there's a lot a lot to unpack there. Um, first of all, I think that when they came to us, they were very young. They were, you know, like 18, 19. They came from much more inward type of place than an outward like a, 
place. And I, the reason I say it is because it wasn't like they came up like a lot of rappers came up doing battles, doing shows. Mm-hmm. You know, they were already experienced live and all that stuff. That was not De La Salle. They didn't have live uh, chops at that point. Mm-hmm. They did that one. I, I think I mentioned this the last episode that they did the uh, that first you know, I think it was an album release party at Payday and they did this incredible show where they had the holding up the placards with the lyrics and it was great. And everyone, oh, this is incredible. This is so different. This is the coolest shit. And we had Three Feet High and Rising Out and it had this really unbelievably cool and different type of imaging and marketing and again, it was sort of, I guess, for better and for worse, because I think that, you know, people embrace the entirety of De La Soul because the album was so different. The sound was so different. The language was so different. Their look was so different. The imaging was so different. But yeah, they weren't road tested. And what I think when they got out in there on the road with, you know, be it LL or whoever else they were traveling with and they hadn't done the grind and they hadn't done those type of live shows on a steady basis. I think that it was, they probably did feel like they had to somehow defend themselves or prove themselves. I'm speculating here because I was not out on the road with them, but I think the, the, the general thing that I have taken away from it all these years later is that, they they be they weren't a great live act in the beginning and then they became a great live act you know uh once they gained their confidence and they had more experience and they were doing it on the regular they you know found themselves but um but i can't really put all that you know, foot the blame for that. Well, geez, if we hadn't done a, you know, a Daisy Age album cover, none of this would have happened. Uh, you know, I think uh, now, you know, the group has actually re-embraced that imagery and um, and it's part of their legacy. Um, so if they had some rough patches there, you know, finding their way from point A to point B, well, th- they came out of it and they, you know, I, and then years later, I say, like, man, they, De La Soul performed like that. They were fantastic, you know, so. Yeah. This is such a class. 30 years after the fact, what 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 were your feelings on De La Soul is dead then and now? You know, in my opinion, of, of their entire canon, yeah, that's, uh, that's probably my favorite album of their of their lot. And it's probably the album that kind of built me. Like, and it's weird. I know people talk in hindsight, like it's such a dark, nasty record. I, I think it's actually their funniest record. Like, it's, yeah, it's, I didn't think of that record as dark at it's, all. It's, it's funny as shit. It's humor. It's biting sarcasm. Yeah. Um, And you guys really did. a. a I mean, the marketing for it was awesome. Like they got on the cover of Rolling Stone, which was truly unheard of back then. And especially, you know, once the source came into play and that was something credible them getting five mics there, you know, just just in general, like what what were the execs at Tommy Boy thinking? Well, were there execs at Tommy Boy or was it just you and Tom? <laughs> hmm. Well, I mean, execs, I mean, we weren't exactly the most 
you know, it's like we didn't have C-suites or anything like that. Like I said, my office was like a very sort of claustrophobic type of place. The um, So I wouldn't say like, oh, my God, the ripple effect through the executive ranks of Tommy Boy. It wasn't no. quite like that. Mm. Um, I mean, listen, the group was reacting, you know, to um, the, you know, pushing back and reacting to the the, the daisy age uh, imagery that I think at that point they sort of feel had been thrust upon them and they were trying to shake it off. And, 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 and they did, frankly, you know, I mean, look at the cover is so, yeah. um, but it's an incredible album. So, you know, I, I don't, I don't remember get having any particular, you know, Zurus about uh, the whole thing. Uh, De La Soul is dead. In fact, I thought it was like, yeah, this is great. <laughs> this is going to be keep a story going, and uh, and it's a great album. If it was, if the album sucked, who would fucking care? But it was incredible. So, did you guys worry at all about them um, putting Renee King's number on the uh, on ring, on ring. ring ring ring? Ha ha hey! I would call her often. <laughs> she pick up at the at the top of ring ring ring. Um, I, I guess a woman uh, for our listeners out there, uh, there's a woman that Poss uh, met at the new music seminar named Renee King. And uh, she just called and called and called and called and called and called and called, left messages after messages. And they decided to leave one of her messages on Poss's answering machine. Area code 215-222-4209. You know that Ooh. number? And I'm calling in reference to the music. Remember, remember hey. who you're talking about? Yeah, of course he does. He called it too. Man, I did not call it. Hell with shit. Man, my mom would have beat my ass I called it. Long distance. What you talking long about, Long distance. Phil? Oh, it's true. <laughs> my bad. My bad. I just my bad. the fuck out of day. My soul is dead. <laughs> I, I, I called that number often and spoke to Renee King. Like, she kept that number till like, I think oh. the last I called her was like 94, but Amir, <laughs> no. you were calling her the whole show. She wanted, she wanted people to call. It was like, hello, is this Renee King? Yes, this is me. Oh, wow. It is her, y'all. Like, well, well, let me put you this way. I don't think that that would have flown today. At all. <laughs> it would be at like all. doxing someone on, right. on an album, you know, or right. stalking or harassment to put somebody's phone number on. Um, I don't even, rem- you know, that's a good point, though, because legally I'm I'm wondering if there was a line that was crossed putting her phone number. I mean, obviously she had to give permission. I mean, she never retaliated. Not she- obviously, though. I'm not so sure it was obvious. I don't think she would. Yeah. She welcomed it. All right, y'all, you know what season it is. Tis the season for spring breaking and planning our summer travel. And if you're like me, you're already in your Airbnb app trying to find which spot is right for you. Now, listen, while I'm looking to spend all this money, what I'm not doing is thinking about making money with Airbnb. See, you got to change your mind state. Make the money while you're spending the money. How, you say, Laia, do I make the money? Well, you host at your house. And I know what you're thinking. I mean, my whole house? Uh, Well, no, you don't have to do your whole house. I mean, you could do a room or, you know, do the whole house. So make some money while you're spending some money this summer. I'm trying to tell you, your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at Airbnb.com slash host. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. 
Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. AT&T connects an ode to podcasts. Connect the alarm. Change the podcast you stream. Connect the snooze. Ten more minutes to dream. Connect the shower. Lather up with the news. Sports talk, comedians, or movie reviews. Connect with that three-hour philosophy show. Change the drive into work and traffic so slow. Connect the dishes to voices that glow. Thank you to the geniuses of spoken audio. Connect the stories Change your perspective. Connecting changes everything. AT&T. I always wanted to know, uh, why didn't you guys release that video? Well, I think I'm answering my question right now as I say it. Uh, for Millie pulled the pistol on Santa. <laughs> a very weird choice for a third single. Why didn't that come with the video? Because, I mean, the song was clearly like levels of storytelling like on slick rick's level but instead you guys focused on the b-side which was uh keeping the faith but i mean at the time when you heard it like did you guys truly feel like that could have been a single um i don't recall your honor Okay. Yeah. <laughs> it was 30 years ago. <laughs> no, I, I, I seriously, I don't recall, but I can tell you, it sounds like the type of thing where I would have said, ah, I don't know, maybe, you know, right. are we going to get, you know, will yo MTV raps play this? I don't know. Will this clear, you know, uh, standards practices. If it's, right. Although I'm sure there would have been a very artistic, interesting way to approach the whole thing, but I don't even recall. But the song is about what it's about. So how do you right. say Yeah. One thing I don't know, what, when did you leave Tommy Boy? I left in February of 1998. So you were there for like Stakes is High. And I, I, I never knew like when, mm. when your era ended and like what albums you weren't there for. The last album that I uh gave a green light to was everlast everlast solo album that dante okay okay produced and and that was the, my the last one that i i said yep we got and it didn't it didn't happen very easily either but that was the last what album. was the how did you have to sell it what what made it difficult well no it was because there was internal drama that was happening at the label that involved oh, on the, label side, the business affairs director kind of having a dick war with Everlast's attorney. And it almost didn't happen, right. but um, thank God it did. Cause that was a huge, you know, that might've, I mean, that album I think did 3 million. So ah, that's a hell of a yeah, way to go out. I mean, yeah. It put your jersey in the rafters. Yeah. But I left February, February 98. But just in general with each daylight record coming out and getting more, darker and kind of taking subtle or not so subtle jabs uh mm. at the industry i mean that's that's the one thing if i could change anything about de La, um i remember my a r wendy goldstein telling me like mm -hmm. yo no matter what y'all do never do a song about how fucked up your label is because nobody cares like nobody cares about the label fucking you over like anything but 
the label fucking you over. Like, did you guys feel a certain way about the the subtle jabs at our artistic expression? Because even with Balloon Mind State, which seems to be everyone's general favorite daylight record, at least when you ask the average person, you know, when they're talking about like uh, Patty Duke and all that stuff, like a lot of these songs are specifically aimed at how we're not stars anymore and we didn't make it and we used to be the shit and now you know, like in focus is that way and whatnot. Mm-hmm. Like, did you guys just let them go off on their own creativity or was someone there to just be like, hey, guys, like no one's going to relate to the fact that, you know, you're not getting properly promoted. Well, OK, I mean, first of all, I don't think there's any label person in the world who's going to sit back and say, man, it was great when that dig really came at me. Of course, it's like, you know, it, it's uncomfortable. It's, it can be a little mortifying. It's like, oh, shit, you know. Um, and yes, I, I mean, I saw the references to duck season on the. Um, yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> and, which is actually. You know, it's that's cool too. I mean, I actually have a really good relationship with Riza. Um, but the um, the thing is, is that the I think even worse, the worst thing you can do is interfere. And I don't. There wasn't anyone telling them you can't say this or don't say that. You know, I think if they needed to work that out, however they wanted to work it out and say it publicly, it's fine. And and you know sometimes people would you know th- there are people who say well you're airing you know your your dirty laundry no one really cares about this sort of drama that's going on over here it's sort of industry uh, it's about mm-hmm. the what's happening in the industry but no there was no I don't recall there ever being anyone trying to issue a corrective about what they could or should say yeah. or how they were saying it. So, and, and, in, and in fact, even if you wanted to, it would probably be futile and just, you know, make you as a, you know, as a label or an A&R person look, you know, then you're really setting yourself up for, you know, right. for criticism. So no. How do you, how are you guys building your staff? Like how does Dante come to your attention? How does what other notable uh, yeah. uh, characters are at Tommy Boy helping the machine run? Well, we you all know, know our beloved Dante Ross. Yes, Dante of Ross. course. And um, there is, I'm glad you brought that up because uh, this came up in a, a conversation recently because a lot of times when people uh, will do interviews and they, they always want to talk about the artists, of course, that's natural. But, you know, one of the things that I would say all these years later is I'm then very proud of is all the people that I had a hand in hiring or that I did hire and who have gone on to really pretty amazing careers themselves. Um, and uh, Dante, of course, is one of them. Dante uh, is a, is quite a rock and tour on in his own right. And uh, I hired Dante uh, <laughs> very shortly after he left Lior Cohen's employ. Uh, I think it was a rather unceremonious parting of the ways. So is, is that an awkward thing? Like if you're one, are you friends with other CEOs of other labels? And is there an unspoken rule about poaching, you know, their particular employees to come and work for us and a carrot on the stick thing? Like. Uh, only only if you're, uh, only if there's what they, I guess would be called tortious interference with a co- contractual uh, situation, tortious interference. I'm no lawyer, 
but the but 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 basically, if someone's under contract and you interfere and try and hire them or sign them, and they're under already under contract with with a label, you are risking, you know, legal action. Yeah. So, but but let me tell you, <laughs> Lior did not have Dante under contract, and uh, and and those two, you know, I think we're happy to be out of each other's way. So, um, so I hired Dante and, um, you know, it's his first day in our job and, um, you know, we, uh, De La Soul was already on the label and, uh, that was the first project that I gave him to oversee was, uh, the album. So, uh, so he's obviously gone on to great renown and great success, right. but there's a lot, but there are others, you please know, say, I, please tell. Yeah. Well, you know, one guy that comes to mind is um, a guy named Rod Houston, who's from Philadelphia. Okay. Yeah. Rod Houston, yeah. 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 And Rod started actually as Tom's assistant. And one of the great things about when the label was really small is that it's not like we had all these different departments, you know, like if people started somewhere, they could very easily sort of shift into like, oh, guess what? We need videos. Wait, we don't have someone to do videos. Oh, Rod, you're going to oversee videos now. And that's in fact, kind of how it happened. Rod was uh, Tom's assistant, but Rod was also in charge of calling the hip hop mix shows. And then he, uh, Oh my you know, God. I just looked at, I'm so sorry. I realized the reason I know him is not because of this career, but it's because of his second career, Rod Houston. Yes. 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 So, so then he, and then well, he was, um, you know, pretty handy with, you know, technical and video stuff. So he, all of a sudden Rod's like in charge of overseeing videos for Tommy boy. And he's a really uh, incredibly great, smart guy, but what, you know, Rod uh, from time to time, he uh, started doing voiceover work and he would uh, say, Hey Mo, do you mind if I, I can leave you over there? So wants to know if I can go, you know, uh, uh, do a, a, a radio spot for them. Mm-hmm. And yeah, sure. Blah, blah, blah. Well, what was starting, you know, pretty modestly back then exploded into this wildly successful career as one of the most, uh, you know, he's got, he's voice. like, a, yeah, he's that voice up there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I cannot turn on the TV or the radio or anything without hearing Rod Houston's voice. He's that <laughs> successful in the voice field. Did he you know? talk like that all the time at the office? KJ. <laughs> <laughs> he always had a reverb machine with him. So, uh, no, he always had that voice, you know, which made him great on the phone. You know, having yeah. Good, a, yeah. a good phone voice is important if you're going to be doing radio promotion, you know, or retail promotion with any sort of promotion, really. Mm. Um so uh, he's one guy. Chris Atlas started. Yeah, Cornerstone. Yeah. Do, Cornerstone. Yeah. Wow. I used to love those when they would send those mixes out, those mixed uh, CDs. God, yeah, really. but, but his first job was, uh, I'm almost certain it was his first job in the industry, was at Tommy Boy doing like street promotions and marketing. Fat Man Scoop. What? what I mean? That's right. Yeah. In your ads. What was Fat his job Man's- there? He was doing scoop had been working actually, I think at Harlem hospital and it was through Albie Ragusa that um, I met scoop and Albie said, Oh, this guy, you know, be good. And so scoop started doing, he was also doing mixed show 
Mm. promotion, Mm. you know, and, but then, you know, Scoop was always such a character and um, I started putting him in the, some of the ads on the back cover of the Source magazine. Mm -hmm. You know, he soon went on to his own brand of stardom as sort of like the ultimate hype man doing those hype records, uh, you know, radio guy too. Were were you the marketing person at Tommy Boy? I was my uh, well, like those jackets and everything. Yeah. As the president of Tommy Boy, I was overseeing all the creative of Tommy Boy. So that was A&R, the imaging, advertising, marketing, promotion, you know, and when we got into doing uh, and all the different tchotchkes and merchandising materials that we made, like we had all the lanyards, yeah. we did all the these uh, Albi. Ragusa, who's another person who started out doing rap promotions and uh, segued into doing A&R, um, was a really had really great style. He was very connected with um, sort of the emerging downtown uh, hip hop, skateboard UK, New York, access of style. He knew the people at Union. Uh, he knew uh, James Lavelle. He knew Sean Stussy. Oh, wow. He knew all these me. cats when they were just coming up. And um, so I always look to Albie as, you know, as a great sort of uh, style and fashion eye. And he was very involved when we did a, a line of clothing and it was, you know, when we did the Carhartt jacket, which became a, a mm. very iconic piece, um, it was Albie's connection to Sean Stussy that resulted in that fantastic logo on the front, uh, front breast, right breast pocket. I think I forget which pocket, but you know, it was, so that those was were official Robbie. Tommy boy. I always thought those were like bootlegs. So that was commissioned through you guys. Oh, absolutely. No, no. We produced those things. And, uh, you know, the Carhartt jacket sort of got its status uh, because we, you know, the thing back then was to really, um, you know, we had a sort of a list of people that we would seed uh, lace, lacing was a thing, you know, tastemakers, artists and things like that. So I think it was that Carhartt jacket in particular was like one of those things where people are like, oh, shit, you know, um, either I have it or I, I, I wish I had it. And, uh, you know, so uh, and it was sort of the beginning of when labels started to branch out into doing um you know, clothing and things like that. Three thousand to five thousand dollars on auction. I'm just saying. Last time, yeah, it was one available. Yeah, that was my. <laughs> oh, <laughs> that was my jacket. <laughs> yes. Dope. There's a hip hop, uh, a hip hop shop in Philly called the Layup. That uh, my current, uh, oh God, I've been with Keith for almost thirty years now. Uh, my production manager used to run it, and he had a Tommy Boy jacket, and uh. I remember like saving up for three weeks to buy that thing because I wanted to leave people under the impression that Tariq and I had signed two Tommy Boy records. Oh my God. <laughs> I wore that wow. shit everywhere. <laughs> everywhere. That's but, the best thing. Thank you for sharing that. Well, speaking, speaking of your staff, there's one thing I didn't ask. Were there any close but no cigar moments in terms mm-hmm. of almost having an artist that you uh, could have signed, but lost like at the last 11th hour. 
Oh, wow. Well, listen, I'll tell you that there are always, you know, a question I always get, well, how come y'all didn't sign Tupac? That's a big one because- Was it an option or- um... Yeah, Digital Underground, I forgot. Oh, yeah, duh. Oh, why y'all ain't signed Tupac? (laughs) (laughs) You know, Digital Underground, of course, was, uh, had done very well on Tommy Boy, and I was uh, close with Shock, uh, and and also with um, their manager, Atron, Atron Gregory. And I knew Tupac from, you know, when he started, when he was a dancer with uh, Digital. And he, um, you know, he's very uh, charismatic. Uh, he's kind of flirty, nice. very, very much more sort of like, you know, clown uh, dropping trow on stage. You know, it wasn't mm-hmm. necessarily the Tupac that people came to know, uh, you know, just a few right. years later. Um, Bishop. But yes. Well, that that role, Bishop and Juice, you know, I've always said that was the big turning point for Tupac, because when Tupac, um, when the first single came out, Trapped, it was on Interscope. And uh, that was not, you know, that record took some time to break. A guy named Steve Berman over at Interscope you know, this is, they were trying to really make a big push into that marketplace. And the, the Steve Berman that's in Dre Day video. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Is that actual Steve Berman? Oh, that's in the video? Probably. Or is that a guy portraying Steve Berman? Well, Steve Berman has a very specific look uh, to him. I haven't seen the video. I uh, think in Dre Day, when like the guy's like talking to Easy E, the Easy E character that, what's his name? Yeah, the comedian from Philly. Johnson. He just passed away. He yeah, just he passed, passed away, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Just passed, yeah. Yeah. I think that's Steve Berman in that video. And he, I know he's in an, uh, uh, in an Eminem record that is, has his, Steve Berman's name in it. Yeah. Yeah. He's always and, on the sketch. I think Violet Brown's on that track. Yeah. But the, um, but the thing is, is that uh, the role of Bishop, I think was, you know, listen, uh, Pac was, you know, he was really best friends with Tretch. Him and Tretch hey, were right. like running buddies uh, here in New York uh, the guy, um, Neil Moritz, I think was the, the name of the producer of that film. I remember, you know, he, you know, told me at one point, oh, yeah, I'm thinking, you know, Tupac. This was a huge turning point for Tupac when he had that persona of that dark, brooding, you know, character that was very different, really, from what people had seen of him. It, I think it was something that brought out you know that it was already it extended into you know his his career as a as a as a as a rapper so but but he was but he was always i think he always was you know that complex guy he just what but you didn't see that necessarily in his role with digital underground but the long story short is that well actually it's a short story long is that the um Atrin had given me uh, the uh, demo tape for Trapped and um, we passed on it. I still, I held on to the cassette and it's now <laughs> in the Tupac exhibition in Los Angeles. If you want to go check it out. Wow. Um, I'm actually going to see that tomorrow. Well, maybe, uh, you know, but you said no? earlier, mm-hmm. you, you, I mean, you said earlier things happen for a reason. Sure. And there's, there's sure. artists that, just because, that, you know, that. I think that Steve Berman and Interscope had the time, the muscle and the desire to really break Tupac and and it was the right fit and it was and it worked. Um, there are artists that 
for one reason or another, you know, just didn't come to pass. Um, You know, I have all the, um, a lot of the demo tapes of um, RZA. When asked, yeah, like RZA, his his first is Prince Rakim deal. How did, how did and, that yeah, and it was sort of, again, it was sort of in that interstitial period when he yeah. was metamorphosizing from Prince Rakim into RZA. Did you like the way that was portrayed on the uh, the Wu Tang saga? You have know, you people have, people have sent me, uh, I have texted me pictures of the lady who plays me, and I'm like, oh my god, it's <laughs> oh, hilarious. So <laughs> now I gotta yeah. look for it. Yeah, yeah. it was good. <laughs> All right, y'all, you know what season it is. Tis the season for spring breaking and planning our summer travel. And if you're like me, you're already in your Airbnb app trying to find which spot is right for you. Now, listen, while I'm looking to spend all this money, what I'm not doing is thinking about making money with Airbnb. See, you got to change your mind state. Make the money while you're spending the money. How, you say, Laia, do I make the money? Well, you host at your house. And I know what you're thinking. I mean, my whole house? Uh, Well, no, you don't have to do your whole house. I mean, you could do a room or, you know, do the whole house. So make some money while you're spending some money this summer. I'm trying to tell you, your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at Airbnb.com slash host. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. AT&T connects an ode to podcasts. Connect the alarm. Change the podcast you stream. Connect the snooze. Ten more minutes to dream. Connect the shower. Lather up with the news. Sports talk, comedians, or movie reviews. Connect with that three-hour philosophy show. Change the drive into work and traffic so slow. Connect the dishes to voices that glow. Thank you to the geniuses of spoken audio. Connect the stories Change your perspective. Connecting changes everything. AT&T. This song was inescapable. I wasn't the biggest fan of it, but, you know, we couldn't escape it. Gangsta's Paradise. Or just how you guys found Coolio. Yeah. Oh, was, he part of the, was he part of the WC Mad Circle? Yeah, he was uh, He was on the, the WC and the Mad Circle album. And okay. then he was in the video. Coolio was fantastic. He was also, you know, he had some troubles too, but he was pretty, he was great to work with and he was a character and, and those were great records. Um, you know, Gangsta's Paradise was also a, a, a track that benefited from a significant film placement. And, and, you know, it, it kind of surprised me that there hadn't really been a record uh, up until that point that had used pastime paradise mm-hmm. um, as effectively as that did, you know, that's like one of those records, like today you could, you still hear gangsters paradise all the time. Yesterday was, you know, we had St. Patrick's day here recently, jump around, you know, oh my God, yeah. <laughs> that's an anthem, 
You know, there's certain OPP is an anthem. We were blessed. Humpty Dance is an anthem. We were blessed to have Lays First. You know, we we were blessed to have some records. Uh, me, myself, and I. You know, anthems. You know, and that is, yeah, you know, something that it, Supermodel is an anthem. <laughs> so- you know, you know, I was thinking, Ponte. It's almost like I think Coolio, he's gangster adjacent. Like he's almost he filled the lane that I think Ludacris wound up doing in the arts, like hmm. looks the role, but it's kind of gangster adjacent. Has like big pop hits, yeah, yeah. I mean, same thing as Naughty, like yeah, look the role and somehow I mean, but did you guys imagine that he would be as big as he was because you guys had like at least four to five major hits on him with Coolio. Yeah. Yeah. You know, man, you never know. You just never know, because I I don't think we didn't hear Gangster's Paradise. It hadn't been recorded when we put out the first track, Mm -hmm. you know, so. No, but even with like Fantastic Voyage and uh, the other uh, there's. I remember he had yeah a couple of joints even yeah off. Um, remember why'd you bring that up? I remember. <laughs> hey, yo, and I was was well. the, but there's two records that really. <laughs> hey, I mean it's only two, but oh, I want to say two out of the It well. felt like it felt like five at least. Yeah, y'all so y'all also signed uh, LV. Y'all put out his yes, album. yep. Titled I am LV. I fuck that. Yeah, but we didn't have any hits with LV. No. But no. I mean, he was a cool song. But. Yeah. <laughs> With, I, I didn't even get Latifah out. Latifah, we got when it. You, when you, like, how did she come to the label and how, because I know that had to have been specific marketing on, on your end, at least. Like, what was your idea? Like, what did you see in her that you accentuated or hmm. what was well, it? I've always said this, that there was three people that uh, I will always credit for. Um, Latifah coming through Tommy Boy, and that was would have been Dante, Dante Ross, uh, Forty Five King, and Fab Five Freddy, and and they all played very critical roles in her early career as well. Um, but they were all they all kind of were talking to me about her, and and she came to the office the first time she came to the office. And Dana was very young. She was an older, you know, you, it's, people forget, you know, like, I mean, she was like 18, I think, you know, and she, again, this sort of round the way Jersey girl. And she came to the office and she just had on like jeans and a sweatshirt, no makeup. She had her hair done. And, you know, when gals were wearing like, they're sort of like curled on the top, a short on the sides type of look and everything. And she just was so unassuming. Um, and but clearly she was very intelligent. She um was had a great bearing and presence, and and she had enormous charisma. She had this thing that it doesn't matter if she's got, you know, full hair and makeup and a great outfit on or something. She just was like had this really unbelievable presence for a young 18 year old woman who hadn't really been, you know, hadn't been off the turnip truck yet. You know, she's uh, 
she'd worked at Burger King and, you know, had a, had her own little group in high school, uh, uh, you know, MC group in high school. And, but she was just calm, cool, collected. And she's always had this quality that um, I think has served her incredibly well over many years. And she, she really could walk into any room. She could go on to any stage. She could basically, you know, MC any event. And she's got that gift. I saw her in the very early days at this place called Hotel Amazon doing one of her very early shows. And, uh, you know how, I mean, the Hotel Amazon was down in uh, Lower East Side and one of these places that they, I guess they just were doing uh, hip hop nights on the weekend. And it was kind of, it was funky. It wasn't like some, uh, you know, playing at the, the Beacon or some other place where they're all set up for sound and lights. This place was not that at all. It was the opposite. And the sound went out. And you know how like a lot of times, you know, if it's the guy, a lot of these guys are, fuck the sound guy, you toss the mic on the floor and stomp off the stage, all angry. She didn't even flinch. She just like kept rocking. And even though the sound was off and the crowd just, nobody missed a beat. And they, they were just, eh, you know, and, and that is her. That is her. She just doesn't get flustered that way. And she has, she's also, she is so, musical. I mean, she's a singer, you know, she, she, she's incredible as an MC, you know, she's got this beautiful flow and presence on the mic, but she's a great singer. And her mother uh, was, her late mother was a tremendous influence on her. And, um, and to this day, we're very, you know, I'm still close with Dana and I had, I was able to work with her after I had left Tommy boy and she had gone, you know, into her incredible career as an actress and doing all other sorts of things. But um, I actually A&R'd two albums of her, uh, her, her jazz albums. She was um, incredible to work with. I loved working with Dana and, um, and, and 45 King, I think, you know, uh, he's another guy that I think probably doesn't necessarily get as much credit and on a herald hero. Yeah. Yeah. He's one of my book of this people. Yeah. I mean, cause uh, they said that, that whole little basement crew and Mark's house that, you know, the whole sort of flavor unit posse emerged out of that. And it was, and Mark was the, you know, it was, that was the, he was the center of all that. If you watch the Yo MTV raps interview where Freddie goes out to, to their basement, uh, to their basement. It's Still a classic have it on interview. tape to this day. Yes. Why it's do I still have the tape? I don't know, but I still have yeah. all my VHS cassettes. Yeah. And you know, she didn't start as Queen Latifah. She started as Latifah. And then she became Queen Latifah. And that's a situation where, you know, like you know, the press, you can really tell sometimes when the press immediately like it's like, oh yeah, I get that. I can really get my head around that. And that was Latifah, you know, um, there was a fable around that. Like I always heard that the queen came from her being involved, not being involved, but her uh, relationship with like five percenters or something like that. But that could have been urban legend. I yeah, never heard her legend. say 
say that. I mean, I know that the word Latifa means delicate and sensitive. I'm not sure exactly when and who or if she just bestowed the queen crown upon herself, which I think is great. But she's, you know, one thing about her, too, is that you find that to this day, like women who are uh, were young and in their teens when she was first uh, coming up were hugely influenced by Latifah. Mm-hmm. You know, I always hear from Present. women like saying, yeah, oh, man, when I was in high school and ladies first came out or unity, you know, or what, you know, yeah. whatever it might have been. She had an enormous influence on on a generation of women. And right. she's and there's also a say about Latifah, because she's one of those people like you, you say, and you know, I don't like rap, but I like that Queen I like Latifah. That Latifah. <laughs> you know, like, that's funny. You're right. Like, you know, your great aunt Gert out in Idaho be like, I love Queen Latifah. Right. <laughs> like, so so there, there's one more uh, artist on your label that sort of reached icon status. Um, that was signed to the label 93. Can you talk about how RuPaul came to the label? Oh, yes, please. Mm. Yeah. Thank you for asking about RuPaul the dance music editor over at Billboard named Bill Coleman. Bill Coleman. Yes. And yeah, he, legendary guy. yeah, real sweetheart. He's a great DJ, uh, still doing his thing now. And mm-hmm. he uh, actually got in touch with me. He might, I think this is even maybe before email, you know, he called me and said, you know, Hey, uh, these guys, uh, Randy and Fenton have this artist named RuPaul and there's this track. I thought maybe you'd want to hear it. I thought maybe you you'd be good for this. So I said, yeah, send it over. And and I already actually knew who RuPaul was because that whole sort of downtown stock Lady Bunny scene that was happening already. Um, the downtowns are a drag scene. And so I knew who Ru was. And so when we got the uh, when I got the tape, I listened to it. It's like, again, it's one of those things where you listen to it and you say, Oh, this is great. This is a great pop record. And what was um, the song, Monica? Oh, it was uh, it was it was Supermodel. Supermodel. Okay. Work, do yeah, it was work. Sashay, Shante. Mm-hmm. Exactly. <laughs> and it was again, it sort of fell into that category of it's either going to be a huge hit or a huge failure. And those, I think, are always the best decisions to be confronted with, um, you know. And so, yeah, it was the sound of CNC Music Factory, where like house was now entering the mainstream and yes. wasn't underground anymore. But at the time, did you think that RuPaul was just going to be like a one-off kind of like? At least, if I'm looking at K7, I'm thinking "Come Baby Come," whatever the song was like. Okay, <laughs> you're just one-off. RuPaul. But did you at all see the? or think that RuPaul had the potential to be the icon that I think, well, no, I'd be lying through my teeth if I said, Oh yeah, I saw this, you know, uh, you know, no, I mean, I I thought we we, we got an early sense that Supermodel was going to be a big hit because that video that his managers directed and, and put together was astounding. It was that and and also the other thing that I was very involved with was placing that record in uh, fa- some key fashion week shows, um, yes. specifically Todd Oldham, 
and Isaac Mizrahi, because this is back when Fashion Week was like a cool thing. Yeah. And, uh, you know, and all the shows that were going on. And so Supermodel, and this is also really the era of Supermodels. So Naomi and Linda and, you know, Christy and all these people, you know, all of that being name checked in the record and that scene being really hot and the drag scenes are coming up. But you had RuPaul, who's like basketball tall. And you know, just no one could walk past Rue and go, oh, my God, you know, this towering goddess. Mm-hmm. Rue had had and has tremendous ambition. Mm-hmm. And, you know, all of all the artists that I've ever worked with, Rue, I think, had to work the hardest because if you want to say, well, we're going to do a day of in stores or oh, we're going to have you do press or go to an event. Well, he has to spend hours getting ready. Yeah. You tell that to any rapper. <laughs> it's like, uh, like really? Right. <laughs> I don't right. think so. You know, so Rue had to really, uh, you know, it was a big undertaking to do all that stuff. And um, and and MTV uh, really uh, broke, helped break that record. Tune is a top 40 dance record. And we did get feedback from, I should say, it was no one really would say it to my face, but I knew that there was disgruntlement with a, a few artists about Rue being on Tommy Boy. There was. Oh, yeah. I know the rappers wasn't happy. They was like, wait, what's going on here? What are we doing? What you doing? But uh, I, my right. label mate, my label mate? Yeah. 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 Not comfortable in certain cases. Mm. Um, but yeah, so Rue mm. really broke a lot of barriers and a lot of people did say, you know, I don't think any legal, but Tommy boy could have done that with RuPaul. So I thought that was always uh, high praise. That's dope. How do you generally feel about music now? Like, oh. is, is, are you still, is the 17 year old inside you still excited about anything musical or is everything yeah. in your rear view mirror now? Oh, man, this is I'm so happy you asked that question, because um, when I left Tommy Boy in 98, I always sort of joked that I left the music industry to learn more about music. (laughs) Um, I left. I was at a very personally I was at a low point and the industry was changing a lot. I was pretty bummed out and depressed, quite frankly. And I uh, started working part time at a record store. Uh, after I left Tommy Boy, a place called uh, Footlights down on, it was on 12th Street. It's a place that specialized in soundtracks and jazz and vocals and uh, things like that. So I would be working there part-time. And then I started, um, I got on the staff uh, at WFMU, Mm -hmm. um, which is a freeform radio station in Jersey City uh, of some renown and started doing a weekly show there for over 15 years. I'm still a staff member there and still do radio shows. And there's nothing I love more than listening to new music and old music. I listen to music all the time. I constantly have Spotify open and have a million playlists. You know, I've nicked quite a few things off of uh, shows that you've done. (laughs) When you were doing those regular shows on Instagram, I love the playlist that you did for Greg Tate. Um, yeah, it was really great. You know, so I'm into all sorts of music, all sorts of music from all different eras. I love it more than ever. And, um, yeah, I I love checking out new, new stuff. I love reissues and, Mm -hmm. you know, I love going down the rabbit hole. So yeah, totally into it. 
Yeah. Well, Where do you find music? Where do you find music? I'm ooh, always, good question, Monica. I was always curious to find out what your uh, means of discovery are. Because- my my favorite my favorite game is playing. You know, you play a song on on your streaming weapon of choice, and you know you always look at the bottom. Yeah, go down to at the algorithm, algorithm, okay. algorithm. Uh-huh. Right, and then look through that artist, and then look in their artist, and look in their artist, and okay. Um, not only that, I would say that you know, as a fan of these these uh, current shows that are on HBO, you know, your Euphoria's, your Insecure's, and whatnot, mm-hmm. like those, they go super deep. An artist I might not have heard before, mm-hmm. and That's then I'm true. fans of theirs, or just in general, I'm not I'm not af- afraid or ashamed to Shazam anything. So I'll be in a supermarket, I'll be in a club, and if I hear something cool, I'm Shazamming it. Totally. And I'll fall down. I fall down a rabbit hole. Like I I don't agree that you know most people say like well music's dead now. It's just so much more of it. You just got to know where to look. I think what's dead is like the tastemaker, like. No, you know, no to have this is kind of why I wish like I really had OK Player up and running in a way that was running back in 99, 2000, where I could always guarantee 12 people would put, put me on to something. Yes, like, that was cool. true. But yeah, yeah. Know, it's it's still there. But yeah. Monica, I, I thank you for doing this for us. Um, Yeah. One of the perils of doing the afternoon is your lunch break is over. And you got to go back to your day job. Gotta work. <laughs> yeah, we Murder. all gotta go to work. Thank you so much, Monica, for doing this. Thank uh, you. This is Questlove. Questlove Thank, Quest you, Thank you, Monica. Bill. And, yeah, Bless. Sugar Steve and, and Bill and Fonte and Laya. And we will see you next go round on Questlove Supreme. Thank you. Questlove Supreme is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy, and I'm your host, Elliot Connie. Jay is the woman in this dynamic who is currently co-parenting two young boys with her former partner, David. David, he is a leader. He just don't want to leave me. But how do you lead a woman? How do you lead in a relationship? Like, what's the blueprint? David, you just asked the most important question. Listen to Family Therapy on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Johnny B. Good, the host of the podcast Creating a Con, the story of Bitcoin. This podcast dives deep into the story of Ray Trapani and his company, Centratech. I'll explore how 320-somethings built a company out of lies, deceit, and greed. I've been saying since a very young age that I was going to be a millionaire. If someone's like, oh, what's your best way of making money? I'm like, oh, we should start some sort of scheme. Listen to Creating a Con, the story of Bitcoin, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.